Hi, welcome to another episode of the Brave Spaces Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Dede Tetsubayashi, CEO and founder of Include. And here today with us is Sabrina Meherali. I would love to invite you to introduce yourself, please, please. Welcome and let us learn a little bit about you. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. So my name is Sabrina Meherali. My pronouns are she, her, and I reside on the ancestral lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, which is colonially known as Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I am, I like to introduce myself as a creative and explorer, somebody who's like an experimenter of life. I'm always asking why and playing with ideas and thoughts. And also on the side of that, I'm also an activist and I'm somebody who's been really deep in the social justice space for a very, very long time. So those two worlds have sort of combined to create the work that I do today, which is through Pause and Effect. So I'm the founder of an organization called Pause and Effect. And what we do is we like to call ourselves an, an inclusive design and imagination company. We work with organizations to reimagine their products, services, and technology through the lens of equity and planet justice. Oh, I love that. Equity and planet justice. We usually don't hear those terms put together when it comes to either DEI and B work or JEDI work, as some people like to call it. A lot of places tend to separate and and silo what it means to build for, for equitable outcomes or to build for justice, thinking that, you know, as, as people, as organizations, as connected beings, we can somehow separate all of those aspects mm-hmm. of ourselves, which I find to be false. But I love how you've encompassed all of that in, in terms of what you do at Pause and Effect. Thank you. Would you please, for the audience, tell us a little bit more about your work at Pause and Effect and specifically what brought you to doing this kind of work? Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a journey for me. I was first introduced to the world of design thinking, or as we call it, human-centered design, several, like almost a decade ago now. And I was, I was really fascinated and excited about the creative potential of this design thinking methodologies. And, and I, I was keen to find ways to practice it. And so I ended up moving into the user experience design space and working as a product manager. And as I was building products and solutions for to problems that society was experiencing, I started to notice quite quickly which people were being deprioritized in the design process and which people were being centered. As somebody who has had a background in social justice for quite a long time, I was always raising voice to advocate for communities that were would be the most harmed and also would benefit the most from solutions to their problems. Um, And I kept being met with resistance around, yes, we'll get to them later, but right now we're going to focus on privilege. And so I noticed this tendency to center design practices around the privilege default, as we call it. And so that really intrigued me about these design methodologies and design practices that we're following were um, inherently producing the systems that we have today. The, what everything that's around us is a product of design and is a product of this creative process of solutioning. Yet we see systemic inequities prevail and we see environmental degradation as an effect of design. And so 
that means that our approach to design is resulting in these outcomes. So we have to fundamentally change the methodologies and the ways that we approach design to produce more equitable and climate positive outcomes. So that's sort of what inspired the birth of Positive Fact. It really was me and my whiteboard taking design thinking and like user experience design methodologies and really extracting, like diving deep into the processes and the methods that we use and looking for those lever points. Like what if we change this about this process or this method, how could we create better outcomes for all? And so pause and effect. Now we work with product organizations and service organizations to help them create more inclusive and equitable solutions, solutions that are also environmentally responsible with the objective of creating more joy in the world and enabling communities to flourish and enabling our planet and all of life to flourish. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it's really important to remember in the work that we do, as I was saying before, like we tend to compartmentalize what it means to design, what it means to design, whether it's an item that you're holding in your hand, software, or it could, of course, be designing our lives, right? And it's important to remember that a lot of the systems that we work in, they have been designed for particular people in mind, and those people haven't always been representative of the rest of the world's population and the human diversity that it can be represented. So when in our work, we focus on designing a better outcome in how we interact with one another, a lot of us disconnect it from what it means to bring it out of like products and services and solutions into the day-to-day interactions that we have with people and of course by extension how what world it is that we're living in that world has in effect been the playground for the systems that are preventing us from being as creative as possible in 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 showing up as fully and authentically as possible so i love that connection but i would love to dive in a little bit deeper into how you in particular, and then of course, how pause and effect think about the difference between human-centered design or your observations between human-centered design versus pause and effect's commitment to relational design and the differences between the two for others who may be listening. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think design thinking in the in the way in which it's taught now or human-centered design, sort of we use them interchangeably. Human-centered design is really rooted in this unconsciously, perhaps, human-dominant perspective. So we see it sort of the way we depict it at positive effect is like a triangle, a hierarchy. At the very top of the pyramid is the person who carries the most privilege. So we would see like a cis, straight, able-bodied white man to be a the sort of the epitome of like what you get at the top. And then the layer underneath would be people with all sorts of different intersections of marginalized identities and experiences that would fall underneath that. Underneath that, though, are all of um, other other aspects of life that we see, living and non-living, things like air, water, land, plants, mountains, other species that we tend to sort of deprioritize in the way that we think about design and that we also tend to practice a lot of extractive behaviors. The land belongs to us. We take from the land and we use it to benefit human beings. That's sort of the 
that's a very Western imperialist way of thinking. And that's what's sort of informed our unconsciously, perhaps, like our approach to human-centered design. And it's also called human-centered design, right? So at Pause and Effect, we've sort of shifted that dialogue to be more centered around relational design. And we draw that as a circle where we're looking at at everything as part of a web or a, a web or ecosystem where there's human beings of all sorts of identity dimensions that are that are they're mixed in with all other aspects that you see on the planet, natural ecosystems. And so in that diagram, what we're depicting is this concept of relationality that we are all inherently connected, that we as human beings are part of nature, but we are not more superior than or separate from everything else around us. So it in inherently has a, an aspect of responsibility, of community care, of reciprocity that you see embedded in that model. And then also of in service of future generations is another aspect that we, that we like to put into that as well, because we tend to see our human-centered design being very short-term and immediate need focused, whereas through this relational design, we're also thinking about our relationships with our ancestors and our relationships with future generations and how we can build for longevity and sustained impact and well-being of, of the future. That's lovingly put, the connection between where we are, who we are today, our ancestors, our environment, everything else in the entire ecosystem within which we inhabit, it's, it, it's all connected. And if, if we're not thinking about what one particular action, how it can result in ripple effects that then can impact positively or negatively everything in that ecosystem, if it's out of balance, how then do we start to think about moving out of the, the imbalance and, and to, to find a, a new balance again with, with positive impact for as many people as possible. Really love that. I would love to ask, actually, when you made the decision to move away from using human-centered design to relational design, did you consider society-centered design, liberatory design as methodological approaches? If, if, if not, have you been aware of, of those types of branches out of human-centered design movement? Yeah, absolutely. I think I've, I've, there's so many different forms of design that are emerging now. So like we looked at life-centered design, we looked at equity-centered design, we looked at like liberatory design. And I think there isn't, and I, I want to be very clear around like not exercising a binary way of thinking either, right? Like I think it isn't an either or, it is like an all and, and we're really trying to see like what works and what doesn't work. Um, so this isn't a knock on any other form of design. However, it is saying that there are certain things, certain harms, certain outcomes that are produced through methods that we may not be conscious of or aware of because of the framing of the way that we approach design. So I think when I was looking at other forms of design that exist, like there still tends to be a human focus around it. And I mean, naturally, because we are people designing and we, we tend to center ourselves in it. But I think that also is really deeply informed through these white supremacy cultural norms that we that we often talk about in our work through a very colonial mindset that 
that creates this idea that we are separate from nature, that we are not connected, that we are, we are more superior than nature, that we control nature. And that narrative, I think, is really unhealthy. And that is what has perpetuated a lot of the climate crisis that we see today. So in order for us to actually um, uh, not control nature so that we control the effects of climate change, but in order for us to actually live better and in harmony with everything that's around us, we have to change ourselves and we have to change the way that we approach our thinking when it comes to design. So we did look at these other methods, like even life-centered design tended, again, like only had one person in the image. So it was like, it was still like the human-centered design with the pyramid, but one person and then all of these other natural ecosystems underneath. Like, again, that's missing the equity component of it. So we sort of played around with everything that we were finding and, and then generated this diagram that you can see on our website where it shows the triangle and the circle. But to speak to some of the social injustices and the social inequity that's happening amongst people and then also to factor in the land-based aspects of it as well. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And and it makes a lot of sense. I, I truly appreciate the the thought and effort that goes into understanding how all of these pieces can connect and and wanting to move away from centering an individual um, that is rooted in a capitalist Western mode of thinking about how their connectivity is 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 uh, related to to the rest of the world and to to other forms of beings, but as we know, capitalist modes of working aren't necessarily generating the most positive impact long-term for ourselves or for future generations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So switching, switching a little bit, wanted to talk a bit about Jedi work, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging work. This, this industry is an ever evolving practice. And within that, in what ways great or, or small are you divesting from oppressive practices and whiteness as the status quo? I was so happy that you asked this question, that you <laughs> shared this with me in advance. And I was like really excited that you asked this question because I, I, to be honest, I don't hear it as often as I would like. I think it's so critical as practitioners in this space that we are actively challenging the way that <clears throat> white supremacy and these harmful norms show up and are embodied these oppressive practices if you put it like how they show up in ourselves naturally we are a product of our environment and we are we're steeped in the environments that perpetuate and that maintain and sustain this, these cultures and ways of being and existing and thinking so inherently we're going to absorb that and then we're going to practice that in our lives and unless we're exercising self-awareness and critical thought and, and actively dismantling it, we're not going to make the changes that we wish to see because everything is going to be like outward focused, but not inward focused. So I think one of the ways I always refer to Adrienne Marie Brown's language around fractals, because I think that 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 really speaks to the way that we think about it at cause and effect. So how we are at the small scale is how we are at the larger scale is her quote through emergent strategy. And so for me, what I'm individually doing, I can share, and then also like what we're doing at Pause and Effect. So I have been raised through, my, my, my parents are immigrants and refugees here living in Canada. I'm a second generation immigrant. And perfectionist narratives and scarcity 
have been deeply ingrained in the way that I have been raised and the way that I think and what I, what I tend to practice in my day to day. I don't like that. It doesn't feel good to practice scarcity. It doesn't feel good to practice perfectionism. And so I have actively been working to practice other ways of existing that that disrupt some of those behaviors. I think these are definitely rooted in in like capitalism and in like oppression. And so I think that um, these are these might seem to anybody listening like small behaviors or maybe not able to connect the dots, but by actually challenging myself to live outside of perfection, I'm embracing imperfection and the willingness to try new things, the willingness to experiment and without shaming myself or blaming others. By practicing um, an abundance mindset, I feel more inclined to work with community. I practice more community care. I feel more open to collaboration, less along the lines of competition. I choose what serves rather than like what and what serves more in the long term than what serves like in the immediate. And I choose based on my values as well. And so there's like an urgency is another thing as well, like practicing and prioritizing rest and decolonizing my my like lens around urgency and what is a priority versus what is a, a fabricated or a false sense of urgency within myself is another way that I'm practicing that. So I think for myself, that's what I'm doing. My team is amazing at holding me accountable. We hold each other accountable in actively sharing and vulnerably sharing what are these norms that we're looking to dismantle and disrupt within ourselves and then helping each other notice when that's coming up and allowing each other to see an alternative perspective but always done through compassion so i think that's something that our team actively practices and then i would say through our work um, inherently the relational model of design is is a way of sort of disrupting these these white supremacy cultural norms and these oppressive practices so i think through the nature of the work but how i also work with clients has deeply changed as well so i'm really leaning more into what does it mean to build reciprocal relationships with the people that i work with not in a transactional, I do this for you and you just pay me money, but like, how do we actually build a relationship, both in the way that I work with my clients and the ways that we work with community and the ways that I encourage them to work with community. So these are the, these are a couple of the ways in which I'm practicing and working towards decolonizing my practice. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. And I love how you started out sharing the quote about fractal changes. And when I first heard the term fractal, it was actually in the context of user experience research readout with a participant who doesn't identify as gender binary, they identify as non-binary, and my pronouns are she and they, mostly because I grew up in a culture and an environment that does not have gendered pronouns. So when I first started learning English, I was like, what, what, where's the neutral in terms of referring to, to persons, people, and personhood, because I that's how, that was normal for me. And then suddenly being transplanted into a new environment, this person referred to their identity as non-fragmented and instead as fractal. And I have since I love um, continued to refer to myself in that way. I love it because it means we're not broken. 
we're intersectional and it doesn't matter in which way you actually turn the kaleidoscope, it's still going to repeat the same patterns on different levels. And so thinking about the work that we do through a fractal lens means to me that we have to approach identities and interconnected identities through a fractal practice. You can't build anything, you can't create anything without partnership and deep recognition of your counterpart. We're not lone wolves, right? The human person isn't a lone wolf on a lone island or or a a separate island floating off in the distance somewhere. We wouldn't survive if that were the case. We're, We're highly socialized beings that depend on a full ecosystem of support. If we don't approach the work that we do as a full ecosystem and approach people, individuals as a connected part of a fuller network, we're not going to be able to understand deeply what our counterparts want. We're not going to be able to build loving, trusting relationships with those counterparts, with those communities in order to actually understand what is it that this person within this network needs from me, what can I do to then support them and move away from individualistic I modes of being able to be in the world? For me, Fractals has always been really powerful in communicating also around like this desire. I think we have this societal desire, especially a lot of folks that are entering in the equity space or or organizations that will hire us to do work is like, we, we want to do like we know this is this work is so big and it can feel so overwhelming and like where do we start and there's so much to accomplish and to change how do we change systems and i like to encourage them to look at what they can do at an individual level because we we often don't realize that that the small changes that we can make within ourselves how what we practice every day is what creates those ripple effects to then become the bigger system and so I think it is it is like really becoming aware of and attuned to the power that we carry as individuals to change systems by changing ourselves. And and so to me, like fractals has always spoken to that because, yeah, and I think I think it is it's it's really led me down a path of deeper self-exploration of how do I show up every day and what do I where do I feel better? I think that like being aware of how I feel in my body also is a clue as to what I, I I feel like I should practice versus what I'm practicing because of the conditioning and because of the system and society. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, okay. We're getting a little bit sidetracked here, but <laughs> I want to, I want to pick on this thread a little bit because I was, I was starting to say that I'm a first generation and second generation immigrant, not refugee, but asylum seeker who has had a lot of difficulty figuring out where I belong because I also have an invisible disability. I have a chronic illness and I've spent time moving in between, in between spaces all the time. I'm constantly in a liminal state of being, becoming, not being ill, so on and so forth. And my team, (laughs) my team also has chronic pain, they suffer chronic pain. And so a topic of conversation 
recently and often is checking in with one another. How are you feeling today? How are you showing up today? And I've recently realized I spent the majority of my life walking into the spaces where I don't feel like I belong, completely ignoring my body and the pain that I feel walking into certain spaces where I don't feel as though I belong or that I have to just use it as white noise because in order to survive, I have to ignore everything else about who I am. And trying to create brave spaces where we can be vulnerable and we can show up and say, this is me today. I'm unable to actually be a full participant and that's totally fine means that we have to start recognizing what our bodies are telling us in those moments of fear, of joy, of trauma, and recognizing that we're experiencing all sorts of things at any time. But if we're not paying attention, we're continuing to do what we should be doing, what we're expected to be doing, which may not be what is best for us in that moment. So I really, really, really appreciate you bringing that up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it presents such an opportunity. I think the awareness is what presents the opportunity of choice. Otherwise, we're just behaving and we're just being and in, in, in doing out of routine and out of practice. And I really associate that to the design process. Like if we go back to that, so much of our design methodologies are out of habit and out of practice. We've been taught always, we just do away, but we don't actually give ourselves the pause. That's why we called it pause and effect is our name, because we don't give ourselves that room, like that breathing space to notice, to question, to interrogate, to assess the way that we are, are conducting ourselves, whether that is like you in a particular space and noticing how you're feeling, what's showing up in your body, or me going through like a diary study and conducting research and like actually asking myself, like, who am I should, who am I conducting this experience on and what are their particular needs and how will this affect them? Or what might I be able to change in this process? Like we don't give ourselves that room to in, interrogate and to ask these questions. And I think by being aware, we then create tons of opportunity to make different choices or multiple choices. So if you're in a space that you feel uncomfortable, you're making a choice to say, do I want to, how do I want to show up here? Do I want to show up with integrity? Do I want to show up with vulnerability? Do I want to show up protecting myself? Do I want to show up in competition? Do I want to show up like we can choose when we're noticing? So I think it is such a, an important aspect of this work is like that self, that level of self-awareness and the awareness of the things that we're doing. Yes, yes. And bringing the intentionality to, as a follow-up to, to whatever it is that we're doing and noticing about ourselves in those moments. Because as you so rightfully pointed out earlier, we are, we are creatures of the cultures that we've been brought up in. We are creatures of pattern recognition. We do what we've been taught to do. And when it comes to, for example, building for equitable outcomes and for inclusion, we have to be, we have to be intentional about stepping outside of what we know and understand about our own selves. And we have to be the anthropologist is what I like to think in the sense that we have to be aware of the biases and the bags and the cultural products that we bring to any environment. And if we're in an environment where we're intending 
to partner with someone else or other people, we have to be aware that they're also bringing in their little toolkit of cultural artifacts. And there has to be some sort of communication and understanding between the two of what is it am I bringing to the table? Let's lay it all out and recognize that laying it all out doesn't mean that we have to be defensive about it. These are the things that make up who I am. These are the things that make up who you are. Now, where are the commonalities that we can find? Where are the things that resonate and where are the things that don't resonate? When they don't resonate, let's talk about those. Right. We have to be intentional. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <clears throat> oh, okay. So the future is relationship-centered. The future is accessible, equitable, and joyful. This quote really resonates with me. What would you say are the greatest obstacles to creating either by design, in teams, in organizations, and or in communities, this future that is accessible, equitable, and joyful? Fear. I would say fear. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Fear is a mind killer. Sorry. (laughs) One of the greatest barriers. to our our progress and our willingness to try new things and to, as we like to reference with like Octavia Butler's work, Parable of the Sower, to shape change. I think if we want to to shape change and to create a world where we are more joyful, where we are presenting opportunities for us to flourish and to thrive and for, for all of life to thrive, we have to be willing to try new things. We have to be willing to experiment. We have to be willing to lean into the discomfort of doing things in a different way. And I think what gets in the way of that practice is fear. And I think the fears are largely stemming from this, the the norms that we talked about, (laughs) you know, when we're, when we're operating from a scarcity mindset, we're thinking about like, what's going to happen to me if I do this? what is going to be like i'm going to suffer we also have a tendency to lean on very very strongly on individualism and i think that is what really hurts us because if like how would it feel would we be as fearful if we believed that community had our back like would we be as fearful if i knew that if i made a mistake i and i fell that i would be held that I would be sheltered, that I would be fed, that I would be taken care of. And because we don't have those systems or we haven't learned to create that for each other. And I think we sometimes go like, even I do this, I go sometimes to the outside to government and be like policies and like, this doesn't exist for us. We don't have UBI. We don't have these certain aspects. So therefore we can't create this. And I think that also uh, hinders our imagination. We're more creative than that. I know that. And I really believe that we can find ways collectively to build capacity and to build systems in which we are feeling like we are protected and held and secured by community. And I think that is, if that existed, I believe that the fear would start to diminish and that we would be more willing to try and to lean in because we knew that we would not suffer. And I think that is, I think that's one aspect of it. I also think that we are, we're like, sometimes we don't recognize how emergence plays into this too. I I, I noticed that as well. Like 
we want change immediately. Again, that's also urgency. So I even I practice this because I see outside and I notice like the, the changes in the weather patterns. I'm just looking outside right now and just seeing that the climate is really changing. And that causes me a lot of anxiety and that causes me a lot of fear and that forces me or, or propels me to lean more into urgency thinking. I need a solution now. And that is also my feeling like I'm still thinking about myself and I'm thinking about my my particular generation and that we don't want to now experience the consequences of the behaviors that had existed in the past that continue to exist today that have created these conditions. But I think if we let go of ourselves a little bit and we just realize that we are all part of this spiral and this this like this process that continues on and on and on and time is always circulating in this way that this is what we're creating now is going to be the reality for future generations it isn't all about us it is about about longevity it is about the well-being of future generations and so i think when we remove ourselves and we remove that individualist thinking we start to see this as intergenerational work we see this as community work i believe that's how we kind of move out of these patterns so i kind of spoke to what i think some of the hindrances are but then also what the opportunities are for us as we as we move deeper into this work that's really wonderfully put. And of course, I apologize for jumping in with the quote from Dune, fear is a mind killer, because that was immediately what I thought. It literally is a mind killer. It is a killer for everything. My my concern is that fear is so, it's such a paralyzing agent. It's not a catalyzing agent or it's not a catalyzing emotion. It's such a paralyzing emotion that I wonder to what extent we are able to remove even an ounce of fear from someone's world. What would they be capable of in terms of being able to understand what other people could experience? You said earlier in your work, for example, when we approach it from an individualistic perspective, let's say we're building a product, let's say we're building a social media product that is out in the world. And the only way we can conceptualize it becoming an agent of good or, or providing some sort of positive impact in the world is to make all experiences on that media platform equal or fair. That's where everyone starts instead of thinking about, well, where are we now? It's not equal. We didn't start equal. We didn't start fair. So how do we get to a place where we actually understand the kinds of the people, who, the groups, the, 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 the folks, the communities who don't experience positive, fair, equal treatment on whatever product or platform we've created and how do we start to understand what those experiences would mean if we were in the reverse position and that was us? If we're able to actually get people to switch their mindset to understand that their individualistic experiences are not the same as others and that what they don't want to happen to them, what hurts them, what brings on their fear, 
could be exactly the same as somebody else's, I think it starts to get them out of the shell a little bit and to start to feel a bit of sympathy. I can't say empathy because that's very particular, I want to say. But I wonder how much of the technology that we have on hand now could go, how far it could go in terms of reversing roles or opening up spaces where we could experience what it is for a different person who's intersectionally different from us, what they experience. How much more sympathy and empathy would chip away at the fear that they have? These are the questions that run through Mm -hmm. my head in the middle of the night. Yeah, and I think it also speaks to this, I think, illusion that this work isn't for everybody. I think people also think that this work around equity and justice is only for those people over there. And this, it, it firstly, that, that creates a lot of othering. But secondly, I think it's, it's also apparent that we are not yet attuned to how we ourselves are victims of a system that has been created like capitalism and, and these colonial narratives and norms are not benefiting very many people to have to adhere to norms like urgency, not being able to rest as much as you want, would like perfectionism, scarcity. These are not individualism. We don't like that. People don't feel good operating continually from those places. And so I think it is, it is our recognizing as a collective that we all heal and we're, we all get better when we practice behaviors that are centered around equity and justice and liberation. It is liberation for all, but it might not feel like it immediately, or you might not think about that immediately. It kind of goes to that quote, which I think is anonymous. I don't know who said it, but it was when you're accustomed to privilege, equity feels like oppression. And I, I often, I often reference that because you may feel like, oh, how come those people are getting this and I'm not, but what we're actually doing is that leveling and and creating what we want to be that fair playing field for all people, but recognizing that it is in that way presently. And so again, it like, it stems back to this individualist thinking, like, why not me? Now I'm going to suffer. Now I'm going to experience the, the harms and actually isn't that way. That isn't the reality, but we're, we're so conditioned to thinking from a place of scarcity and fear that we don't recognize that it actually liberates all of us by practicing these different ways of being. So yeah, thanks for raising that. Yes, no, no. Truer words have never been spoken. We definitely operate oftentimes from the perspective that the this pie, whatever this pie is supposed to be, is, is limited. And there are only four slices or there are only six slices. And if I have a slice and you want to give more slices to other people, We can't slice it up in any way that everybody can have a piece or a bite or anything. Um, Instead, the fear is that you're going to take away my bit of food, my bit of sustenance, and give it to someone else, rather than we're actually trying to create a future within which everyone can Mm -hmm. have their own damn pot. Mm -hmm. Or at least everyone has a bite. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And I also just want to be clear too, for anybody who's listening, you know, sometimes hearing us talk about urgency or individualism and, and we can again, exercise very binary thought. Like Sabrina is saying that urgency is all bad. And I'm not saying that <laughs> I'm saying we have to, again, exercise. This is it. This is again, another norm that we practice around binary thinking. It's either, or I would like to encourage people to think about the both end that there are places and times in which urgency is required. If your place is burning down and you need to get out immediately, urgency is necessary. But sometimes we have in, in today's world, there's hyper urgency around so many things where there doesn't need to be urgency. And the effects of that is what causes a lot of the patterning behaviors, the lack of opportunity to challenge, to notice other ways of doing things, the consideration for community, the ways of shifting practice, like it all stems from that. So I think it is just really important to say that we don't shame these, these norms, but we recognize that there are other ways of existing too, that, and it's sort of practicing both and, and noticing when something serves us and when it doesn't. Correct. Absolutely correct. Thank you so much for calling that out. Yes. Would love us to be able to think more in, in flexible continuum or practices where we're, we're trying to move away from the binary. It, it, sometimes it does serve us, but sometimes, oftentimes it doesn't. We aren't, we aren't binary. We're, we're a rainbow. We're a continuum of, of difference. Difference with an E, difference with an A. Take your pick. Okay. Now, in the work that we do, data comes up a lot, especially when we're working with engineering teams, product teams, show me the data, like show me the business case. Why is this important? Is this a moral imperative or is this a business imperative? What's happening? I would love to talk a little bit about data. What role, if any, does data play in your work at Pause and Effect? Mm. That's a great question. I think there's data in so many different ways. And so I, I think about that question is really broad for me. So I think about like data from a, a systems perspective and like the data that we get from observation and noticing the shifts and the changes in patterning and behaviors of society, what we are seeing in the world, where things are heading and where things are moving. So we notice a lot of signals that indicate to us the direction of work and the way that that products and services need to evolve. So at a high level, I say like data informs direction for organizations. And then I think at a at more of a micro level is we're looking at specific products and specific experiences in which that are created. Data does play a role. And I think data is also limiting. So I think that there is um, there is a place in looking at for example, we could take a very simple example of saying, you know, what is the, how many users of different identity dimensions do you have on certain, for a certain like technology that you've created and what does the intersectionality look like and so on? Who are the users that you're trying to attract and which ones are perhaps not there? I think that touches on a very surface level of examination of like just the quantifiable metrics that we can use. But then we can get into qualitative, which looks more at sentiment and experience. But then I think there's the things that are intangible. And I like I wrote about this a little while ago, which are which is that I think in the West, in Western society, we tend to lean on validation of knowledge through data. Like we say that it is only true 
if we can measure it in a in a particular way. Otherwise, it, it, there is no truth to the work. And we see this a lot show up also in marketing. Marketing is a very heavy data industry. So we see folks saying like, unless you can show us or prove to us the business case of us doing this, then we won't do it. And I think that can be really dangerous because how do you measure the impact over time? How do you measure a change in somebody's confidence? How do you measure the way that somebody feels seen for the first time? How do you measure? So there's so many things that, how do you measure the level of joy that somebody experiences when they see somebody who reflected them when they were a child? How do you, there's so many things that you can't actually quantify in this work. So I like to, I like to just take us sort of out of some of that, that, that over-reliance on data. Data does play a role. Data is important in driving the work, but it isn't the only thing. And I think so often we have we have gut, we have intuition, we have instinct, and these are other forms of knowledge that we in the West have to been conditioned to ignore or to deem insignificant or not valid. So I also want to just raise that as these are other ways of knowing that are not less important than those that we can just quantify and measure. And so yes, and data is important and data is also limiting in the way that we tend to look at data in the West. Agreed. Agreed. I love that. We, we tend to use the approach that data is inert. Data is data and data can come in all forms. I love how you've specifically identified quantifiable, qualifiable or quantifiable. Yes. And, and qualitative data that is usually the focal point in, in Western enlightenment thought processes, methodology, so on and so forth, but the community-centered forms of communication, those are also data points. Comments, questions, observations, when you watch how a people interact with one another, those are all data points that we don't necessarily use to determine what positive, equitable outcomes could be in the West, but they're just as important. And I want to say we often ignore them in our efforts to rush out and colonize the rest of the world to do work in the way that we do work or to be in the way that we are in our little parts of the world. Um, validation doesn't exist of other forms of thought, other forms of knowledge, other forms of being. And those are all forms of data that play a central core role when you're partnering, when you create a true partnership with the community, with the members of those communities to truly understand what is it that you're actually able to help them create mm -hmm. for now and for yeah. the future. I guess like a question that comes up for me, I don't know, I've never expressed this before, so I'm just going to say it, but how do you measure the quality of a friendship is the oh. thing that comes up for me. How do you measure that? What do you do to measure that that's a good, a good friendship? And I think when I start to think about that, it's like, I measure that based on all the things I end up receiving, all the ways in which we like share joy together. I measure that in in experience, right? It's it's different. Yes. There isn't a you can't put a Western side. You can't put a Western. On that. No. Even like 
totally encompass the quality of that relationship through my sentiment. It's, it's not captured in its essence, but you know that it's a quality relationship and there's, there's something else intangible in that experience. And so I, I like to sort of think that, think about that when it comes to the work that we do too. And I know sometimes for folks that are so conditioned to think from a very Western way of data that we're like, okay, well, I'm not going to engage with you if you can't show me how exactly to measure this thing. And we're not saying that you can't measure outcomes. You can measure outcomes and it's not going to be the whole pie. It's not going to tell you the whole story. It's sort of like the way that we tend to, I think, approach research in our work too. We, we have a very extractive relationship to, to research with community. It isn't true community engagement and relationship building. So that which you're able to obtain through an extractive method of research is going to be very different than what you're going to be able to obtain through a relationship or a friendship. You can't measure the, like, how do you measure the difference? But you know that there is a difference. And I think that is, that is, that gap is the part that I'm trying to speak to is that it isn't, it isn't again, an either or it's a both and, and it is far more complex than we tend to deduce it when we think about, about like what data actually is. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's that, that intangible, I want to say gray space, because it's not clearly definable in like black and white. It's not, it's not a number that you can put down. Like you said, it's not, it's not something that's measurable. And I think that's the key area that in the West, we want to be able to measure. We count on being able to measure and it's not something that is measurable. It's something that is is a feeling and that is communicated in love and trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. My goodness. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you this so much for the conversation today. I want to make sure if there's anything that you're working on right now that you want to share with the audience, any courses, any newsletters, anything at all that you want to share with the audience, now is the time to do so. And you can also share with us later and we'll we'll definitely post it. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, if anybody's interested in learning more about this relational approach to design from like looking at the methodologies that you tend to use in UX and in product design or in solutioning of any sort, we're happy to, to support. We offer consulting. We also offer workshops that can help folks identify. And we also work from the individual level. So we do workshops around unpacking culture is what we call it. So we look at the ways in which these cultural norms that we talked about show up in our day to day and how they impact our ability to design. So that's another workshop offering. Um, And then for folks who have ERGs, one of the newer offerings that we're bringing into 2023 is futures thinking for ERGs, really working with the, the communities that experience the outcomes of systemic oppression to imagine societies and imagine futures in which they are thriving, in which their communities are flourishing alongside other communities and with the planet. And so it's a way of of gifting your ERGs an opportunity to feel more joy, feel healing and connectedness in this work where they tend to be quite drained and extracted from. So I'm really excited to bring that into 2023. And if people want to reach us, it's pauseandeffect.ca. Pauseandeffect.ca.
www.sabrinaspeaks.ca. Sabrina, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to chat. I appreciate the time. Me too.